Special thank you to Angela for our children's sermon this morning. And I want to thank you as a congregation on behalf of uh, myself, uh, former chaplain Brian Klutzing, and uh, people at Windsor Park for praying for us during this pandemic. It's been a challenging time. God is good, and we're, we're in a good place right now, even in the midst of changes and challenges. And so today, we are, as Pastor Nate said, concluding our series on anchoring truths in troubled times. And it's my privilege to bring to conclusion this series that many of us have felt have been so relevant to our daily lives. As I have uh, prepared and thought and prayed, uh, I've used a number of sources, but I especially am grateful for the uh, work of John Stott on the book of Romans and uh, wanted to acknowledge that. Today we are going to be talking about Christ the King Sunday. And maybe you have pictures of what a king is or who a king is. For many of us who have watched and seen Lord of the Rings and the amazing cast of characters from Frodo Baggins to Gandalf and all those people in that uh, epic journey through Middle Earth. At the end of Return of the King, Aragorn is finally crowned the king of Middle-earth. And it's great to see the response of the people who are there because he has been a great leader in that. As we look at these verses today, I want to remind us that Paul has given us a brilliant exposition in chapters 1 through 11, of the greatness of God, of what sinfulness has plagued human life, and God's work in renewing broken relationships through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and His plans and His purpose for our world. Not only an exposition, He has as we have done these past weeks, had a great exhortation as we've been growing to seek to live as God's people in loving community. So this morning I want to suggest this to you, that our anchoring truth today is that our God is the glorious King over you and me and all of creation. One of the things I took away from last week was 
a wonderful verse that Pastor Nate referred to in Romans 14. And it's this right here on the screen. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Romans 15, 13. God has made us in his own image to know the fullness in relationship with the king and his kingdom here on earth and through us. One of the questions I had as I began thinking about this is, well, what is the difference between a king and Lord? And from the very beginning, God was king of his people. And it came to a point in the history of the Hebrews that they wanted a king. And finally, they anointed Samuel, anointed Saul to be king, and anointed David to rule over the people of Israel. This main responsibility was to maintain the righteousness of the people of God, to keep the law and the Torah in their possession. And the king had a duty not only to act as a judge, but to preserve justice and proclaim the law. We see that history for Israel and Judah throughout the Old Testament. But as we enter the pages of the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus begin with this proclamation. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he announced to the religious leaders that their king was in their midst. He pointed out to Pilate, it was not a king. He was not a king of this world. And that he was not to be seen in the same way as the Roman governor or Herod, the puppet king of Judah. But this idea of being king and kingdom means realm, means reign, means domain. The dominant sense is the sovereignty and kingly rule of this person. And so we can say that the sovereignty of God is absolute. But it has not been recognized by sinful human people. And thus will come judgment. The gospel of the kingdom of God means that all men and women are given the opportunity to receive the kingdom by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. To rule 
Well, we know over history that the rule of earthly kings is limited. But the rule of our king, our God, is everlasting. That he has delivered you and me from the power of darkness. And that we are set free to live righteously. And so what does that mean, the word Lord mean? Well, Paul uses the word Kyrios or Lord frequently in referring to Jesus, not so much to recognize God, but he even uses it to refer to humans in dominant social roles like masters of slaves. It's, it's really a, a way of designating the one who is in charge. Got me thinking about the uh, Romans Road. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we look further and we see that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Paul would continue in Romans chapter 10 to say, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will experience salvation. You will be saved. And so, as our King, as our Lord, we bow to Him today. Just like those subjects bowed to Aragorn when he was crowned king of Middle-earth. Let me suggest to you this as well, that God, our God, is the glorious king whose fullest expression is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, but He is the Lord. And He is the example. He said He would build His church, build His people into a kingdom of those who would love and sacrifice and service. The next frame in Lord of the Rings is Aragorn looking at the four elves who had been so instrumental in helping overcome the evil. And he says, we bow to you. And that's part of this idea of service and sacrifice, that we honor each other, even as God has honored Jesus Christ. You know, in years past, the Gaithers wrote a chorus that went, Jesus, there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, 
like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus let all heaven and earth proclaim, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. The name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior and King. Well, let me also suggest, as I point here, our God is the glorious King who is exclusive in his relationships with his people. As we look at this, God had given Paul a very unique ministry. He had given him the opportunity to proclaim the message not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And he had been given a priestly ministry, proclaiming the gospel. Now, Paul is not about telling them to offer themselves to God. It is God, or Paul, who presents this sacrifice. And in the past, all the Gentiles had been rigorously excluded from the temple in Jerusalem. We're not able to permit or permitted to share in the offering and the sacrifices. But now, now through the gospel, they themselves have become a holy and acceptable offering to God. And here's the principle of this and its application. As uh, John Stott has says here, it is this truth more than any other which effectively unites the church, church's two major roles of worship and witness. And it's a perpetual cycle. And there, I should say there's a, a parenthesis there that I will explain. And that is this. When we worship God when we glorify his name, we are challenged and we are driven out to proclaim his name to the world. And when our witness is fruitful, people are brought to Christ and we offer them to God and they then join us in worship until they too go out in witness. And so worship leads to witness. And witness leads to worship becoming a perpetual cycle. And we can say that no wonder Paul is grateful to share in this privileged ministry. And says, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God, verse 17. Let me also suggest that our glorious God is the one who cannot be contained by people and or places. He always exceeds our expectations. Think of it, the setting of the writing of the book of Romans, really, Paul was in 
Corinth. And he was writing this letter to the most powerful place on earth at that time. It would be like writing a letter to Washington, D.C. Rome was the seat of power. The common statement of the day was Caesar is Lord. He is the king. He is the master. And so God had given Paul also a powerful ministry. And it was very personal. And he uses the word power in different ways, but his objective was to lead Gentiles to obey God in the same way that the Jewish people did. What Christ has accomplished has been what Paul says, what I have said and done, literally by word and deed. And you combine words and works, verbal and visual, and it's a recognition that human beings often learn more through their eyes than through their ears. Our words explain our works. Works dramatize our words. We think of the public ministry of Jesus and how he said he would continue to do his work and to teach through his apostles. This power was also extended through signs and miracles. The powers exhibiting God's power over nature. Signs, their, their significance, that God's kingdom was present among them. And their wonders, which brought about the amazement of people. But it was the power of the Holy Spirit that was being displayed. We usually think of the Spirit being displayed through God's Word, which is His sword. And it is the Holy Spirit who takes our feeble human words and confirms them with His divine power in the minds and hearts and consciences and wills of hearers. Every conversion is a power encounter in which the Spirit, through the gospel, rescues and regenerates sinners. Let me also suggest to you this morning that our God is the glorious God whose kingdom extends to all people and all nations. God had given the Apostle Paul a pioneer ministry. He talks about this idea that he had preached all the way from Jerusalem around to Illyricum, fully proclaiming 
the gospel. Literally, it means in a circle or a circuit. So you think about it, and, and Paul begins in the eastern Mediterranean, and from Jerusalem goes north to Syrian Antioch, and then further north through the process, provinces of Asia Minor, across the Asian Sea to Macedonia. From there it leads south to Achaia, and east across the Aegean Sea again, and back to Ephesus, to Antioch and Jerusalem. Paul may have preached in Illyricum. He may have had the opportunity to do that. We don't know for sure. But he fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And his strategy was to evangelize populous and influential cities, to go there and plant churches and to leave others in the process of growing that church and the gospel into the surrounding villages. Paul had a very, uh, an amazing plan as he preached the strategy. He was quite clear that Jesus calls different disciples to differing tasks and endows them with different gifts to equip them. We've read about that in Romans chapter 12. His own calling and gift as an apostle to Gentiles was for this reason to pioneer evangelization of the Gentile world and then turn it over to others, especially locals who could carry on the pastoral care of Christians. Well, Paul talks about why he hadn't visited Rome yet and he invites the Roman Christians to pray with him in his struggle, that he would, there were two things that would happen. First of all, he would be rescued from those who were his opponents in Judea, and that the offering that he was receiving from Gentile churches would come to Jerusalem and have a wonderful ministry to the poor. Paul says, I've been hindered in coming. I've been concentrating on meeting and, and building churches among the Gentiles. But he also didn't feel at liberty to come and stay in Rome because he hadn't established that church. He didn't want to come and take over, so to speak. Well, let me uh, show you the last one point here that our God is the glorious king who is expansive in his relationship with people. Let me add to that in his rule and reign. Friends, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, our God doesn't live 
among just white middle-class American Christians. Our God is a God who has a worldwide vision because two-thirds of the population in our world live in third-world countries. There are peoples and tribes and nations who we belong to in God's family as sisters and brothers whom we have never had the opportunity to meet. In chapter 16, Paul talks about all of the people in various walks of life and social strata. More than 26 people he mentions here who have, he knows that are a part of the church in Rome. And let's just say, for example, that uh, Pastor Nate went on a trip and he wrote a letter to Faith Covenant Church. My question is, what would Pastor Nate say in his greetings to this church about people like you and me? Would he say, Someone is a fellow servant. Someone has given up their life. Someone was the first convert in this church. You see, the aim is to build God's kingdom on the corner of Butterfield and Lakeview that goes way beyond this property. And continues into the world. I want to close with this. That in 1741, a librettist named Charles Jennings wrote to his friend with his idea and words for an English oratorio. This friend happened to be George Friedrich Handel, who was a German who lived in London. He was preeminent in British music, had been acclaimed by so many Jenin sent him a new libretto for an oratorio. In a letter dated to his friend Holdsworth, he says, I hope Handel will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it, that the composition may excel all his former compositions, as the subject excels every other subject. For the subject is the Messiah. Late that summer, into the fall of 1741, the genius of Handel was in full bloom as he composed his sixth English oratorio called The Messiah. And it happened in 24 days, from August 22nd to September 14th, 
in three parts, prophecies, passion, the resurrection and glorification. And at the end, Handel wrote the letters SDG. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone the glory. It premiered about six months later in Dublin and within a year in London. Handel made many revisions, but the full published score of the Messiah was first issued in 1767, some 26 years later, and eight years after Handel's death. One of the great experiences I have in this church and have had for many years is the joy of sharing on Easter Sunday in singing the Hallelujah Chorus that He shall reign forever and ever. And friends, even as I'm saying that, I know the chorus is rolling through your mind But let's remember that God is the glorious king over you and me and all of creation. That our lives are meant to be lived for the glory and honor of our king and his kingdom. So the question becomes, how do we live in light of this reality? The anchor that God is the glorious king. Let me suggest five different things. First, we start by daily acknowledging that God is my king and Jesus is my Lord. Secondly, we place our trust in this king by listening and doing what he asks us to be and to do. To be salt and light in this world. That people would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. I also want to suggest that we can live daily for God exclusively. Jesus calls us by saying, seek first, above everything else, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And to ask God to broaden our circle of relationships and influence for his kingdom. Fourthly, we focus on people and relationships Not success, money, and power. Because what's going to stand the the test of time is going to be the relationships that we have with people. And lastly, we ask God to enlarge and exceed our vision for his kingdom in Wheaton, 
in Warrenville, West Chicago, in Carroll Stream, in Naperville, and beyond. Sometimes we are too free to limit what God wants to do. And so in these ways that I'm suggesting, we can, in fact, set our anchor deep into this glorious King and His kingdom.